Today's sermon comes from Exodus 12, 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. The cross is a, it's a declaration of freedom. The cross is, of Jesus Christ is about freedom. We see it connected to the Exodus, and we're going to look at the connection of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the Exodus when God's people were rescued out of Egypt. They were free. They were delivered. They would look back and say that was their salvation when they were set free. And so the cross is very much about freedom. It's about a declaration of freedom. But why? It's the question we're going to answer is why, why is the cross of Jesus Christ a declaration of freedom? First, to understand it as freedom, you have to first understand sin as slavery, right? That we have actually been freed from something. And so let's look at the, at the slavery of sin or the enslaving nature of sin. Now, before we get to Exodus 12 here in the Passover, you have to ask the question, why did Israel need the Passover? Why did they need to be rescued? Well, because they were in awful slavery in Egypt under, underneath Pharaoh. It was harsh and it was oppressive slavery. And to look at the nature of it and what it was like for God's people, we're gonna go back to Exodus chapter five. In Exodus five, Pharaoh makes a decree that describes not only why Israel needed to be freed, but why you and I need to be set free. From sin. Exodus 5, verses 7 to 8 says, You shall no longer give the people, meaning Israel, God's people, straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past 
you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And you, so you see what Pharaoh did. He said, Israel, you're going to make just as many bricks as you've been making, but you're going to get less straw, which was the ingredient in the bricks. In fact, you're going to have to go out and find your own straw. So what happened is Pharaoh said, you're going to make the same number of bricks, but you're going to have to work a lot harder to get that same return. And we see in that a very vivid picture of the enslavement or the addictive nature of sin. More bricks are the same number of bricks, less straw. Work harder to get the same return. Jesus says in John 8, 34, he says this, everyone who commits a sin or commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, nobody's off the hook in this room. There's not some sin that we do that's enslaving and some that's not. It's okay, it's just breaking the rules. No, Jesus says from his mouth, he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That sin has this uh, addictive, enslaving uh, nature to it, that you have to work harder to get the same return. And we can use obvious examples like alcohol, right? To, to, to get the same buzz or the same feeling from alcohol over a period of time, you have to drink more and more, right? Or with drugs, to get the same result or the same feeling or the same impact over a period of time, you have to take more and more. And that sin works that way. That sin is, uh, it's addicting, it's enslaving. There was a fascinating article in the New York Times. It was a New York Times book review on uh, Silicon Valley tech gurus and how they design successful apps. And they talk about how they design an app to get you hooked and how they actually keep you hooked. In fact, the, the app designers have a word for this. They talk about, quote, captology, which is the, the art of capturing someone and then keeping them captured. And so one uh, um, app designer, he's also a professor at Stanford, he, he wrote a book, listen to this title, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Product. He wrote this book. He's actually a game designer and professor at Stanford. And he explains why applications like Facebook and other things, social media, are so addictive. Listen to this. Or what makes them effective. A successful app, he writes, creates a persistent routine or behavioral loop. The app both triggers a need and provides the momentary solution to it. He goes on to write, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness, indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. Goes on to write how this, this, these habits are, are they're, they're, they get cemented, right? And that's how someone, someone gets hooked. Case in point, an article in The Atlantic shared about an interview with a 14-year-old girl from New Jersey. And her name was, her name was Casey. And she described how um, at 14, and we'll get to it a second here, she, she had an addiction, 
But she described how at 18 months old, she got her first computer. That was a toy computer. Uh, and, then, and, and then in second grade, she got her first real cell phone. And then this is what she describes about her addiction that she would call to technology and social media. Listen to this. I bring my iPhone everywhere. I have to be holding it. It's like OCD. I have to have it with me. And I check it a lot. It's not like I want to go on Facebook or I don't. I just go on it. I'm like forced to. I don't know why. Facebook takes up my whole life. If I'm not watching TV, I'm on my phone. If I'm not on my phone, I'm on my computer. If I'm not doing any of those things, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I don't put down my phone and it makes me wish that I did. It's addicting. Now you say, wait a minute, are iPhones sinful? I hope not, we're all in trouble, right? Is social media sinful? Of course not. Just like alcohol in and of itself isn't sinful. Anything can become sinful when we look for it to medicate our boredom and medicate our loneliness and medicate our stress and medicate our pain. Anything, even good things, most of the time, good things that God have created. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. And anything can become an idol when you look to it to alleviate the brokenness in your heart and to bring satisfaction to the depth of your heart and to your longings. And the reason that it's addictive and enslaving is because it by itself, by very definition of being an idol, a false god, cannot bring satisfaction. It can bring a momentary satisfaction, but it cannot satisfy the heart. And so what it does is it brings a little bit of momentary satisfaction and it goes away. And you need another hit of it. And over time, you need more hits of it to get that same satisfaction. That's the nature of an addiction. And that is the nature of sin, that it's enslaving, that it's addicting. So why is the cross of Jesus Christ a declaration of freedom? You have to start there and understand that sin has an addicting, enslaving nature to it. And once you understand that, then you understand that the cross has to, has to ransom you from that slavery, has to free you. Now, what did it take for Israel to be rescued or delivered from Egypt? Let's go back to this Exodus. What did it take, and now we're gonna, we're gonna be in Exodus 12, what did it take for Israel to be rescued or to be delivered? I'm gonna look at two things. First, the, the debt of sin, and then second, the actual ransom payment. Okay, let's start with the, the debt of sin or the cost of sin. Look at verse 12. It says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now, why the firstborn? What's the significance of the firstborn? Why does God say, I'm gonna strike the firstborn? Well, this is hard for us to understand in a highly individualistic Western culture. So I'm gonna ask you for a moment just to, to step out of the, your cultural moment and into ancient culture when this was written and when this occurred. In ancient cultures, you did not aspire for individual success and prominence, which is all about our culture. In ancient cultures, you aspired for, the, for family prosperity and family prominence and family success. And the firstborn 
was given the estate of the family. The firstborn was given the estate and all the, all the hopes of a family would rest on the firstborn. The firstborn was, was valued and highly valuable and the hopes of the family rested on the firstborn. So we read in Exodus 22, uh, Numbers 3, Numbers 8, the references are there in your sermon guide. We read that God says the life of the firstborn is his unless it's redeemed. And so you'll read in those, those verses, you'll read where they would pay shekels. They would pay um, money as the redemption price, right? To redeem their firstborn. And what God was saying by that is that there was, there was and is a debt of sin on every family on the face of the earth. There was a debt of sin on every family on the face of the earth and the cost of that debt was the firstborn son was the firstborn. Now, let's, let's tie this into a story that um, some of you may know, uh, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. And if you remember that story, God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, Abraham, and go up and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And what is so shocking about that story is that Abraham just does it. He doesn't seem shocked by the ask. God has just asked him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Now, as, as highly individualized Western people, we read that story in Genesis 22 and we say, wow, Abraham was a man of such faith that he'd be willing to kill his son. He loved God so much, more than he loved his son, that he would sacrifice his son. That's how we read it. Wow, what a test of faith. That's not what it means. In fact, if God would have said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go into your tent and I want you to kill your wife, Sarah, to sh so you show me how much you love me. Abraham would have been shocked. He would have thought he was hallucinating because God would have never asked something like that. That was crazy. No, the reason that Abraham wasn't shocked when God asked for him to sacrifice Isaac is because Isaac was his firstborn son. And Abraham knew and understood that God was calling in the debt calling in the debt, Abraham's sin and his family's sin. And so Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain and Isaac says to his dad in verses seven to eight of Genesis 22, Isaac says, dad, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God was saying, there's gonna be a lamb that's gonna die instead of you. Now, you know the story, they get to the top, Right when he's about to sacrifice Isaac, God provides a, a ram in the thicket, but still no lamb, still no lamb. So fast forward. Now we're in Exodus 12, where we're at. Look at verses 12 to 13. And I give you this background so that now you understand what's happening here. Verses 12 to 13, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. On this one night, we see a temporary preliminary judgment day. We see future judgment make its way into history on that Passover night. And we see what it took 
for Israel to be ransomed or redeemed or rescued out of Egypt. And the reality is on that night in every house, there was either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. A dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. And I want you to imagine, just put yourself in the shoes of a Hebrew family of Israel. And they're, they're sitting in their house, they get the command, and they've had this lamb that they've been raising. And they sacrifice the lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, and they're sitting there eating the Passover meal. And the firstborn son in that family, in that Hebrew family, is sitting there looking at the table. And as he looks at that table, he realizes that lamb is dead instead of me. That lamb has died instead of me. The lamb got what I deserved for the debt of sin on our family. That's the reality of what's happening in that moment. But Israel needed a much deeper deliverance than a fluffy, white, four-legged animal. Okay, this was pointing forward. The blood of the lamb was pointing forward. In fact, in John chapter one, we read it. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says what? Behold, the lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 19, verses 33 and 36, we learn that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that not one of his bones was broken. In fact, they, they record how the, the soldiers came up to break both of his legs like they would do for every criminal. And they didn't because Jesus had already died. Why? Why didn't they break Jesus' bones on the cross? Exodus 12, verse 46, when the Lord's giving instructions to Moses for the Passover, listen to what he says. You shall not break any of its bones, the bones of the lamb. You see, they didn't break Jesus' bones because it was a fulfillment of scripture, that Jesus was the lamb. He was the lamb of God offered up to ransom you out of slavery and out of the grip of slavery to sin. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a ransom payment for many. New York Times reporter, Nicholas Kristof, he tells the story of going to Cambodia and choosing two teenage Cambodian prostitutes that he was gonna purchase out of slavery from the brothel in which they served. And, and if you are aware, Cambodia is rampant with sex trafficking among teenage girls. And so he had a heart to do something, right? So he, he, he goes to, and he chooses two of them. The, the, first, person's, the first girl's name was Sray Neth, and he paid $150 for her. The second girl, uh, her name was Sray Mom, and he paid $203 for her. And, and he rescued them, and he brought them back to their villages and back to their families, and he describes the scene when they came back into the village and, and the aunts and the uncles and moms and dads and everyone was just erupting with joy, right? Because these two girls had been rescued. They had been, they had been ransomed. They had been purchased out of their slavery. And the village erupted with joy. You and I have been ransomed. If you're in Christ, 
Jesus Christ has ransomed you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you're bought with a price. You understand what that means now? You're bought with a price. And the price is the precious blood of Jesus. The, The blood of Jesus is what has purchased you and ransomed you out of slavery to sin. Now, the question is, what do you do with that? What do you do once you've been ransomed? So you've got the slavery of sin from which we have to be rescued. Then you have the the ransom from slavery, Jesus' blood being the price that buys you, that purchases you out of that slavery. But what do you do with it? This brings us to our third point, the the flight from sin. You'll notice in in Exodus 12, in our passage, that in verse eight, it talks about unleavened bread being part of the Passover meal. Now, why unleavened bread? What's the significance of that? Well, there's two, I think, important things to note there. One is uh, uh, leaven is what causes a bre- bread to rise, right? So unleavened bread was supposed to remind them of the hasty departure from Egypt, right? Once they were uh, uh, ransomed and rescued on that, on that Passover night, they were to go. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, right? That's why it was unleavened. But there's a second point, and it's not stated explicitly in Exodus 12, but, but all Jewish teachers understood uh, leaven or yeast, same thing, as a, a representing the corrupting power of sin. Uh, yeast is that small, it just takes a small pinch, right? You put it in a batch of dough and then you bake. And when it bakes, that, that little pinch begins to make its way through the whole batch of dough. And that sin has that, that corrupting influence right, as it spreads. And this is picked up in the, in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. And I want you to listen to this because Paul makes this explicit connection to the Passover and to who Jesus is. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore, here's the response, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What we learn there is that God wanted to do more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. That God wants to do more than just rescue you from slavery to sin. He wants to get sin out of you. And so God has freed you from your slavery to sin so that you can run from sin. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to flee sin? If you remember last week, I talked about the core of evil or the core of sin is me first. That's, That's the core of evil is me first. Let me say it a different way. Sin is all about taking. Sin is all about taking, fleeing sin or salvation. Coming out of salvation, fleeing sin is about giving, right? If you look at every act of sin, if you were to, you know, break down in a real morbid way, all of your sin and every detail of it and why, if you get down to why you sin at the core of it is a taking, that it's a life that's about taking. Let me give you a couple examples. You cheat on your taxes, right? Because you're taking money for yourself from the government. 
Uh, you gossip about a friend because you're, you're taking from that friend, right, to build your own reputation and your own glory, right? You're taking from that person by tearing them down. You commit adultery or really any sexual sin because you're taking pleasure, right, for yourself. Or you get angry at your kids because they're taking away your peace and quiet and you're gonna take it back, right? And so your anger explodes because you're taking, taking, right? Sin, at the core of sin is taking. It's taking. Let me go back to the story about those two Cambodian girls, the teenage girls that were rescued out of prostitution. So Nicholas Kristoff, he purchased them and he tells what happened when he purchased the second one, Sre Mom, for $203. He purchased her and she told him, she said, I pawned my cell phone off for $55. I need you to buy back my cell phone. And Nicholas Kristoff said, forget about your cell phone. We gotta get out of here. And she started to cry. And he said, listen, you need to make a choice. It's either your cell phone or it's freedom. So what'd she do? She ran back into the brothel and she ran back into her little room and she, she locked the door and she began sobbing. And her friends, fellow prostitutes in this brothel, they came to her and they were trying to reason with her. Even the brothel owner came to her and said, you need to, you need to grab this while you can, go. She continued to cry and she didn't stop crying until Nicholas Kristoff bought her cell phone back for $55. And then he said she, she began to um, talk about jewelry that she had pawned off and wanting to make this part of the deal. Now, before you, you know, shake your head and say, what, what is she thinking? <laughs> Freedom, she's free from this brothel where she's been abused. Why does she care about a cell phone? Why does she care about her jewelry? Just go. Oh, you and I know it well. You and I know it well. Looks like something like this, to have that, the heart of that girl that got rescued and ransomed. Jesus purchases us out of our awful slavery to self that's so destructive. And we say, we say, thank you, Jesus, but I need my comfort. Right? Or, or, or thank you, Jesus, but I need people to like me. Or, or thank you, Jesus, but I need to climb the ladder at work. Or, or thank you, Jesus, but I need more money to feel secure. We do the same thing. And what's Jesus' response? Here's his response. I'm your comfort. I'm your approval. I'm your power. I'm your security. I'm your control. I'm your reputation. I'm everything. And I've ransomed you from awful slavery to self. Now come. Now come and follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of the Exodus. 
when you rescued your people out of Egypt and the vivid picture it gives us of being rescued out of sin. That you bought us with a price. That you paid the ransom, not with gold or silver, that you paid the ransom with your own very life and your own very blood. Father, I pray for those in this room, all of us that struggle with the slavery of sin and even of being ransomed and, and, and struggle with the, um, the depression of, of running back and wondering what's wrong. And Father, you tell us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, that Jesus, we need you every day, not just once in the morning, we need you every moment. to help draw us away to yourself, the beautiful one where, where, where all of our comfort, security, and power and approval is wrapped up in. And thank you that, Father, you forgive us over and over when we run. You forgive us over and over when we flee to sin and you continually draw us back. And so, Father, thank you for rescuing us from slavery. Thank you for freeing us from its awful bonds. And we pray that in that freedom, we would rejoice and that we would worship. And we're gonna do that right now. So as we close in worship, would you capture our hearts? You, Jesus, capture our hearts that we would sing with joy and sing with worship of your ransom. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.